sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour you'll find them at the back of the range and here's your host ben adelberg and welcome to the back of the range i am your host ben adelberg this is episode 244 well, two weeks ago, I headed out on the road to cover some amateur golf tournaments, one in Tampa, the Gasparilla Invitational, and the other, the Prestige, which is a collegiate event in La Quinta, California. Florida to California, and now I'm heading back to Florida. So, my time zones are a little bit off kilter at the present time. I'll recap those tournaments at a later date. I'm heading back to Florida today and then on to Georgia for the Jones Cup Senior Invitational. But for now, let's get to this very special episode that I'm very proud to release to all of the listeners here at the back of the ranch. In honor of President's Day week, it only seemed fitting that my guest this week at the back of the range would be Fred Perpal. Now, the name may not resonate with some of you, but if you've attended a USGA event over the last couple years, his presence is unmistakable. How many guys standing six foot six do you see at the first tee of a USGA event? Fred Perpal has served on the USGA Executive Committee for the last three years and was recently named President-Elect of the United States Golf Association. So after this year, Fred Perpal will become the first African-American president of the United States Golf Association. During this episode, we spoke about Fred's early days growing up in the Bahamas and how his experiences there shaped the direction of his life. Now, we spoke about his entire life journey, what led him to this point, so I don't want to get into his list of achievements here in the introduction. Fred has been a tremendous supporter of the back of the range, So this was a special treat to be able to discuss some interesting topics surrounding the game of golf with a man that has had an incredible life journey. I think you're all going to enjoy this episode tremendously. So Fred, thanks so much for the time. Welcome to the back of the range. How are you? Dan, it's good to be with you. I'm doing wonderful. Well, happy new year. I think the last time I saw you was at, uh, was at our, uh, victorious, uh, Walker cup, the U S team with the, uh, comfort behind. So I think that's the last time we, uh, we saw each other. So happy new year. How is, uh, how's the new year treating you so far? Well, it's been an exciting, uh, and, and, uh, real torrid pace, uh, to get 2022 started. Um, you know, I'm, uh, just so fortunate to have, uh, you know, a wonderful family, wonderful company, and uh, and certainly, um, you know, some really interesting things to do in the game of golf. And I know that's what we're here to talk about today, but uh, it's off to a great start. That's uh, yeah, interesting, I would say, would be the understatement. There's a lot to unpack, a lot of uh, a lot of stories and updates to share with regards to your uh, your the conclusion of 2021 and what lies ahead for you in 2022. There are several ways that that the episodes here at the back of the range have started. Many of them start with, "Okay, how did you get into the game of golf?" We're gonna we're gonna you know pause and suspend that so f- for a little while. I thought it'd be fun to share the story of when I first met you. <laughs> so, <laughs> first meeting you, uh, very fortunate. I was able to you know we're really uh, you know when when is the height of the pandemic anymore? Who knows? But. Uh, this was obviously the summer of 2020, USAM at Bandon Dunes. I was fortunate enough to be 
invited by the USGA to serve as as a content contributor because due to travel restrictions, a lot of the USGA media people were not able to attend. So I was able to get through and, and hang out and, and talk to a lot of the players and, and document the, you know, document that year's U.S. Amateur. And then I see a large figure. Is that, is that fair, Fred? I mean, a lar- <laughs> large figure on the first tee serving as the starter. And, you know, when you think about famous or noticeable starters in the game of golf, you think of Ivor Robeson doing the Open Championship, for, which seemed like forever. And then, yep. of course, Bob Ford uh, doing the U.S. Open and such a mainstay at Seminole and Oakmont. And then I meet you. And for people that never met you, uh, six foot seven. Yeah. Lar- yep. Yeah. And and you were charged with being the starter at the USAM and you completely commanded that first tee. Um, you're obviously getting there and getting that honor as a member of the executive committee uh, for the USGA. We'll dig into that later. But talk to me about that experience for you as a starter of the US Amateur. Well, you know, Ben, I, uh, I say, quite frequently COVID has taken a lot from us, yes. but COVID has also given us some interesting things. Um, Stu Francis, Mike Davis, the entire 2020 leadership team of the USGA, John Bodenheimer, who leads our championship team. Everyone deserves a tremendous amount of credit for 2020, even though we canceled uh, all but four of our championships that year, we were able to conduct the U.S. Amateur, U.S. Women's Amateur, and both U.S. Opens. And what 2020 allowed those of us on the executive committee to do was really to serve in more diverse roles and to lean in and to actually learn more about what we do at the USGA relative to conducting championships. And so it was fun to be, you know, called in for sort of really spot duty to, to be the starter at the amateur and also to score, (laughs) to be, you know, sort of a Rover. Um, uh, I mean, we, we, we just played so many roles and, um, you know, it felt like a real victory. And I always say to Stu Francis, who is our USGA president, that, you know, he deserves a ton of credit for having to lead us through this COVID time, because whatever is expected of a volunteer, I, I bet you Stu has had to do twice as much as president uh, just getting uh, through all of the volatility. So that amateur was a lot of fun. Martha Langard championship chair at the time uh you know was all hands on deck and so whether it was uh whether it was scoring whether it was timekeeping whether it was starting uh i think uh, you know our our mornings were really long and our days were really long but certainly a lot of fun all right i'm going to put you on the spot here fred you are uh you're a leader in in the business uh, world you're a ceo of the beck group you know one of the most respected architects in the country and you're a graduate of harvard business school let's see if the if the mind is sharp this morning who is the first name you announced on the first tee in the first round of stroke play at the u.s amateur in 2020 was it dietrich mina fosas <laughs> okay he was in the first group so i'm gonna give you i'm giving you points for that but i believe it was spencer tibbets from oregon state okay maybe it was spencer tibbets but i do remember looking at fosas and saying Boy, right off the bat, I'm going to be challenged with enunciation here. So I, I um, knew that. I think I, I think I talked to you about that too. Yeah, Carl Diedrich Mean Fosas was. was in, I'm like, they're they're really like, all right, let's see what this, let's see what Paul can do here. Let's. 
That's fantastic. Well, not not bad enunciation for a kid from the Bahamas. Uh, well, I'm glad you're you're pivoting to that because I want to talk about, you know, kind of your start in athletics. We're going to talk about your start in golf in a little bit, but native of the Bahamas and, you know, most people when I guess you're in the states, they think about Bahamas, they think about fruity drinks and beach resorts and vacations and Talk to me about growing up in the Bahamas. What was kind of your childhood, not just educationally, but athletically? Tell me about growing up in the Bahamas. Yeah, Ben, you know, growing up in Nassau was uh, a lot of fun. Of course, Nassau is the capital of the Bahamas. And I always like to say to my American friends, growing up in the Bahamas is about as close as you can be to being an American without being an American. Okay. You know, the Bahamas is you know 80 miles off the coast of Florida, and certainly, uh, we have a pr- British, um, you know, uh, history as a British territory and now independent country. But, you know, growing up there was a lot of focus on family. You know, I come from a big family. I, there were six siblings, two parents, and uh, we lived in a two-bedroom house. So you, we were a very close family, not only, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, spiritually and relationally, but also in terms of proximity. But my parents just focused a lot on, you know, us staying busy. We grew up in a, you know, sort of lower middle class neighborhood and there were always a lot of distractions. And so my parents just kept us busy. And the way they did that was education, you know, church and sports. And so I had a very uh, wonderful childhood, a very, you know, sort of elegant uh, childhood, but it was always busy, um, you know, and sports and athletics ended up playing a very large role in my life, uh, as did the church and uh, as did education. So um, I just have the most fond memories. And my wife, Abby, and I, we have a home uh, in Nassau and we still go back a lot. The majority of my family is still there. And so, you know, growing up in the Bahamas was about as good as it gets. Now, you, I guess the two main sports as a kid for you and and as you kind of matriculated on from high school to college were track and basketball. And if I have done my my homework correctly, you had numerous opportunities to accept track and field scholarships, but you chose to go to UT Arlington to play basketball. So kind of an interesting You'd, you'd think maybe go for because I don't think you had a scholarship for basketball. You walked onto the team. Is that correct? I did. I did. So what was interesting about my athletic life, I look back, I was a much better track athlete than I was a basketball athlete. But track and field, Ben, was just not a very social sport. You know, we we trained maybe six months out of the year, trained really hard every morning uh our coach would pick us up. My brother and I, we'd get picked up about 4 a.m. We would train for three hours every morning and then another hour in the afternoon. And you did all of that really for about eight meets a year. And it just seemed that we were doing all of this training with very little uh, opportunity to quote unquote play. And basketball just always was more attractive to me. One, um, it was very social. It was a team sport. You had to enjoy being with other people. It was something that you did with others. And, uh, you know, my love for basketball was always a little bit, uh, you know, just a notch above my love for track, even though, um, you know, if you went back to my childhood, I had a much, uh, you know, sort of better performance in track and field. In fact, you know, I was the captain of my high school track team, uh, the boys team and the women's captain, 
uh, Tonic Williams is a gold medalist in the Olympics. And so you, you could just tell, uh, tell you how accomplished our track and field teams were in the Bahamas during those years. A lot of talent around you at all times, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. But, you know, I think sports uh, has been a big part of my life and uh, athletics. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been real easy to pivot those experiences to my experience in golf. Now, what's your most known for, at least when we, you know, work through this episode and have our conversation is, is being on the executive committee for the USGA. And you've recently been named, you know, president elect. You're going to be the next president of the USGA. Normally during an episode, we're, we're talking about how a young person gets into the game of golf. A lot of the people I've had on the podcast are accomplished collegiate players, amateurs, and, I hear a lot of stories of, well, you know, my dad put a club in my hand at age 10 or my, my mother's a, a club champion. I followed her to the golf course. I'd hang out with my buddies in the summer. We'd, we'd go to the pool, then play nine holes. hear a lot of those stories. But uh, you're in your late 40s and you've just picked up a golf club about 10 years ago in your late 30s. Is that about right? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, we're going to, we're going to figure this one out. Uh, how, who put the golf club in your hand for, how did you get into the game of golf? Walk me through that. Uh, ben, I'm in the architecture and construction business and, you know, for, for us, you know, there's always, you know, so many opportunities with our partners and our clients to try to figure out ways to get to know each other better. And so I have been around the game of golf probably my entire 25-year career. Um, but I never played uh, uh, golf and I never played in any serious manner other than, you know, attending a few corporate outings and maybe lashing at the ball. Um, <laughs> okay. about, about 10 years ago, I was promoted to uh, CEO of our firm and I relocated from Atlanta to Dallas. And in doing so, just given the way our, our life was at the time, we wanted to find a nice club for the family so that we had the opportunity to connect to other families and have some intimacy and privacy when we needed it. And so we joined Northwood Club here in Dallas, which was actually the host of the 1952 U.S. Open. And I would go up to the club with my, my kids and use it in that way, you know, lunches, dinners, go to the pool with the kids. And I would always see the guys having so much fun. And it just seemed to me uh, during that time that I was missing out on something. And so I went over and I met the pro and I said, look, I want to learn to play golf. And this, this was probably right around 10 years ago. And I said, but I want to do it in the correct manner. And I, I've grown up playing sports. I played college uh, uh, basketball at the University of the Bahamas and then at University of Texas at Arlington. I know what it is like to apply yourself to something. And I just, I, I want the proper instruction and then I want to learn how to play. And I promise you one thing, no one will outwork me in terms of learning to play this game. This pro and must so, have just, this, not to cut you off, this pro must have been like, I've never had a student like this. Where, where did you come from? <laughs> Every, everyone goes to a pro and said, yeah, I want to shoot 72 and just take two lessons of 45 minutes a week and make it happen. And they're like, oh gosh, I'm not going to be able to do this. <laughs> You're like the dream student. So you and I have spoken and I know, and this will flesh itself out later in the episode but humility and gratitude are two of your cornerstones not just in business but in life how <laughs> i can't even get through it without laughing how quickly did humility find you when you first started playing golf well one of the things i love about golf is it's constantly you know sort of humbling us sure 
And, uh, you know, I think for those of us that, that have had, you know, sort of accomplishments in other areas of our lives, we're always looking for ways to test ourselves, you know, to sort of center ourselves, to right. align your mind, your body, your soul, your, your thinking. And golf certainly challenges all of that. But I will tell you, the first two years I played golf, I did not play with anyone. Okay. I would literally go and take my lessons. I would go to the range and practice. Right. I would chip, pitch, and putt. And then I would go walk nine holes and play by myself. Uh, it, my golf was that bad at the very beginning. And so most of my friends, uh, you know, sort of 2012, 2013, still laugh today that, you know, we, we never got to play golf with Fred until he was about three, four years in. Yeah, the, um, it was uh, the, pro the project was under wraps. It wasn't ready for public consumption it, yet. No, no. In fact, my first real uh, fun story was maybe the 2017 AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am where I literally practiced every day for four months in a row because uh, a good friend, Randall Stevenson, who was then at the chairman of AT&T, invited me to play. Oh, no. and, uh, oh, and I had been working really hard on my golf game for maybe about three years at that point. And uh, I hired a new coach, Chris O'Connell, who at the time was Matt Kuchar's coach. Sure, sure. And I said to him, I said, we've got to, you know, like any other, you know, accomplished person, I said, we've got to get ready for this thing. Uh, and, uh, and so Chris and I worked, uh, you know, every day for maybe three, four months. And I, I'd like to say that I showed up uh, and shot a couple rounds in the uh, mid eighties, which felt like a real victory given the, uh, the strokes I received. So that was a fun moment. That's incredible because you're basically three, four years into the game and you're playing kind of like a member guest on steroids, I think is the, probably the best way to describe the AT&T for an amateur. I mean, it is not, most amateurs have no clue what they're getting into and you're playing at Pebble. Oh my gosh. You the, the oh. heart, Thank God there was no whoop strap on you at that point because the heart rate would have been off the charts. Well, let me just tell you something. Uh, you know, I like to talk a lot about in the firm about urgency. You know, I think nothing great in life can be accomplished with a little, without a little urgency that you got to have, you know, this, this moment in your, in your lives and these moments where things need to happen, where improvement needs to be made. And, you know, the AT&T for me was that, right. It was a moment to say, all the that you've been giving to this game, you've got to really apply yourself and get to a certain point. The other part is you've got to have those butterfly moments, yeah. right? That those are the moments that help you understand and to help you remember that you're alive, and uh, the tingling in your spine and the you know here standing up on your arms. And I'll never forget we we teed off on Thursday on the tenth hole at Pebble Beach, and I remember at the time I was hitting this big you know sort of fade that easily became a slice and uh -huh. i remember lining up down the left side of that uh 10th hole uh and you know that hole that where the ocean is on your right uh -huh. and hole, the green is sort of to the player's right and uh i just remember thinking i'm gonna fade this thing down there and uh, uh you know if i if i double cross myself here someone could get hurt so yes. Yes. <laughs> that was a pretty fair fearful moment but uh but a good one yeah and it's interesting listening to you talk and just from, like you said, you're, you're at Beck group, you're, you're CEO of the Beck group and, and it's a you know big architectural firm and just that, that career path and that line of, uh, that line of work, there's deadlines and there's a step-by-step -step process and there's a lot of pressure there. And I'm guessing it 
translates to the way you learned and played golf because you want to take things step by step. You have urgency, but sometimes with golf, you have to let it come to you a little bit. So I could see the advantages, but I could also see that that had to have been a really kind of a frustrating time for those two years. Who was maybe someone that kind of took you under their wing, not just about learning the game, but about learning the the etiquette and about socializing and playing and being one of the guys because it's not just it's not just hitting the ball it's about yep. being social and enjoying the process and, and the camaraderie who is maybe someone early on that kind of said hey you know come on into the you know let's go play let's you know join the guys let's go yeah no well you know that's where i think you know I, and i like to say to young folks like one there's room for all of us in this game you know this is the reason we love golf because golf ultimately one it tests you individually but it also connects to you, you know, socially and the, the duality of those things that you're really playing the course. You're, you're not playing your competitors, although there are times you do mostly you're testing yourself, your yeah. own skill. If you're not lined up right in your life, it's really hard to be lined up right in golf. And so this wonderful opportunity to walk and bathe in nature, to cleanse yourself uh, and also to line yourself up right is so important. And then the ability to connect to others, you know, when in 2016, we started to work on Trinity Forest uh, and opening Trinity Forest, we, we started working on it much before that. Uh, and I met, you know, just a great group of guys that uh, we had this project that we wanted to create this wonderful place for championship golf in South Dallas to bring the Byron Nelson back to Dallas proper. And in this, I met sort of my golf you know, what I like to call is my golf rabbis, you know, guys nice. like Sam Chipman and Jonas Woods and Bob Dedman and these guys that we were building uh, this course together, but we also were learning more about the game itself. And as an architect, a trained architect, it was really easy to learn and to really delve into golf architecture, yeah. sight lines, proportions, procession, scale, you know, all of the things that we think about in in building design also translate to golf design. You know, how we construct things, the quality of the material, the quality of the pre presentation. You know, all of these were things that we were working on with Bill and Ben Crenshaw, really under Jonas Woods' leadership. But, you know, for me, the love of the game really was deepened going through the process of building a golf club and a golf course. And I learned so much more about what it meant to truly bathe yourself in the game, traveling around the country, uh, looking at precedent, looking at what worked and why. Not only were we building a course, and so how do we want these greens to work? Are they going to be push-up? Are they going to be USGA spec? Uh, what will our bunkers be lined with? You know, what are the proportions? Where do they go? All of these things that go into to, to great architecture. But we also had to compose a club, you know, so who are the members of the club and how do we select them and and how do we write bylaws and, you know, really what will the ethos of this club be? And so, you know, Jonas Woods deserves a lot of credit. But for me, this was an opportunity to play a leadership role in helping to create something special, but also to learn. And it's that humility that I hope that I continue to bring with me to the game. The, the knowledge and the context, you know, is one thing, 
but the curiosity and the willingness to keep an open mind and to continue to learn and connect with others, I think is another thing. And so for me, I like to say that my game, my game really hit a trampoline in 2016. Uh, that's the year we opened Trinity Forest and truly, truly you could end up on the range standing between two tour pros and, uh, before we even opened the club, one of our members, Jordan Spieth, you know, won two majors. And, you know, so we were brand new opening a club with, you know, a major champion amongst, you know, our first hundred members. And uh, because there was only a hundred of us, all everyone played with each other. And so there was no sort of, you know, stratification between the high handicaps, the mid handicaps and the low handicaps. And with everything you do in life, you show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And so when you start hanging around and playing with good players, your play improves. Uh, you, the way you think about the game improves. What you learn improves, right? You know, the first time I really learned to, you know, read a yardage book, I was instructed by Hunter Mahan, a touring professional. <laughs> I mean, awesome. literally uh, called in to do spot duty to caddy for another buddy who was one of our leaders, uh, Tom Dundon, who had played a major role in developing Trinity Forest. I was called in to provide some spot duty for him during his AT&T Pebble Beach run the year before I played. Never read a yardage book. Uh, and uh, Hunter pulled me aside and said, okay, here's how you do it. And here's what you want to note. And here's where you mark. And this, these are the things that are important. And uh, of course, it was really easy to digest and learn these things because of my experience as an architect uh, and the role I play in my day uh, job. So yes, um, it's been a wonderful journey. It's been a fast journey. Of course, my wife likes to say, Fred's been playing only 10 years, but he's played 30 years worth of golf in that 10 years. Oh, and there, so, you, there you go. <laughs> uh, so we have a lot of, lot of fun stories. Now you brought up Trinity Forest and I, and I, I just, I wanted to ask you, so you're no, I mean, you have built, buildings all over the country and been on uh, boards to, uh, board of, you know, you're on several boards, but you're obviously a member of the board of trustee, trustees that helped build Trinity Forest. Um, as much as that experience was beneficial, you know, just with any, any job, there are the, the ones, there are the aspects of the job that are really exciting. And then there are aspects of the job that are just, oh man, we have to get this done. It's just, this is, the, this is the pain point. I don't talk to a lot of architects or people that were in charge of, of getting a golf course built for someone that maybe doesn't see how this, you know, they don't see how the sausage is made, so to speak. What was maybe one aspect that was very challenging, maybe that someone wouldn't even think of that, not saying you wouldn't try and build another club in the future. You never know what, what, what your, the future holds, but is there an aspect of building a club, building a golf course that is the most challenging that you found the most challenging? Yeah. I mean, look, we had with Trinity Forest, first off, we had some wonderful leadership first provided by Jonas Woods, who was our sort of you know main leader still is the president of the club. We had Randall Stevenson from AT&T who promised to sponsor uh, the Byron Nelson and there, thereby create the reason for being for this, this club and this course. Uh, we had Tom Dundon who financed us uh, as we went along. We had Ron Spares who was the vice chairman of AT&T. So we had all of these 
you know, sort of personalities that themselves brought a great passion for golf. You know, I think for me, I brought a lot of the technical skill in that we build things for a living. That's what I do. And I like to say to folks that the work you do should take you closer to the life you want. The work that you do should take you closer to the people you want to be with. And so for me, this was a wonderful opportunity to bring a true passion for the game and married up with what I do for a living. But our challenges were unique to Trinity Forest and, and then general to building any club. And on the unique side is we had a due date where we had to host the Byron Nelson. So our timelines were set. Yeah, We were building on a, on a reclaimed landfill. And so we could only go so deep. Uh, we had to abate all of the uh, trash. We had to backfill it with select fill. And then we could never drill back into that, you know, sort of fill based on EPA standards. And so we had a lot of construction challenges. And when you do get to come and play Trinity Forest, you'll notice that a lot of our bunkering and our greens and everything is built up because we really can't go down. Part of what make, made it a big challenge to host and conduct a professional uh, tour event there was that you could never drill into the ground. And that became quite a challenge in terms of erecting stands, et cetera. Then we had to go and recruit other leaders in our city to pitch in financially and to actually, and I give Jonas a lot of credit for this, to actually walk business leaders around a reclaimed dump site where there was no, <laughs> where there was nothing, and to actually pitch a vision for a golf course of the highest caliber and a golf club. Wow. And before we ever broke ground, you know, Jonas and Randall and the whole, you know, sort of original leaders had already sold, you know, a hundred. Uh, founding members on doing so and then we got these wonderful you know folks in our town in dallas who love golf people like bob deadman and bob rolling and that brought a lot of their passion and experience as owners of courses otherwhere to 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 help us in terms of how we thought about not only designing the course but also how we thought about building the club. And that still goes today. And so I feel like I've been very blessed because I came right into the game at a standard that, uh, you know, one could not expect, uh, uh, you know, on an average basis. And the humility for me is, you know, the, uh, the proximity to these other leaders and the wonderful opportunity to learn from them and to be instructed uh, around what's important and then to go do that learning with a purpose in mind to build this club. And that, that, that for me is probably this, this gift, Ben, that I've been given in the game. Well, and another great thing about Trinity Forest, I mean, obviously, yeah, I would imagine having a firm timetable that you have to adhere to because, hey, PGA Tour's coming to town. But another great thing about Trinity Forest is uh, home course for SMU men's and women's golf. And how special is, I mean, I know you love being around the amateurs, but you roll in and, you may see a Noah Goodwin or, or a Kennedy Pedigo or Ali Osborne or, uh, you know, numerous collegiate players. That has to add a little bit of excitement because you never know. You may you may be teeing it up with these guys or, or these young ladies at any given moment. Oh, no. And we do. And that's uh, that's fun. One of the funny things at Trinity Force is we, we have to take some strict risk management around what can we uh, do with NCAA rules and what we can, which sure. actually has translated into my USGA amateur status uh, committee oh, role. Yeah. 
but I, I will tell you this. We had four purposes at uh, Trinity Forest. One, we wanted to build uh, a, a golf course capable of conducting a tour championship. So to build an elegant championship golf course. Two, we wanted to provide a home for SMU golf. We literally wanted uh, to bring SMU's golf program back into Dallas proper. Three, we wanted to make available our club and course to support the great charities of Dallas. And so every Monday, the course is rented at a very discounted rate to allow charities in Dallas to raise funds and then deeply invest in our civic and philanthropic efforts in the city of Dallas. And then fourth, we wanted to host a first tee site so that we can provide kids uh, regular kids who come from not come come from means kids like myself the opportunity to learn and to be engaged in the game but also to learn life skills that will help them for the rest of their life and i would say one of the proudest you know sort of moments for me is watching all of this actually work no we we were not great at hosting a tour event and there were many reasons we were not great at that but the other three three things work, and they work in a very magical way. And so when you see the young kids, primarily kids of color, uh, at the back of the range across the way working on their game th- at the first tee, and some of those kids then become you know kids that work at the club, and you know you build relationships with them that way. Whether you see the SMU, uh, you know, sort of uh, players uh, on the range, and then you know, for me, the uh, ability to announce some of these kids at the U.S. Amateur yeah. and, and to stay neutral and non-biased, but there is a part of me that I notice a deep humility, but also a deep gratitude that you get to experience life this way through the game of golf. So quickly, I mean, you just said that you said all the right things there, there, Fred, but how excited were you to see Ali Osborne in the final of the USAM at, at, at Bandon? You could, you could, it's all over now. He lost. <laughs> you, you could say it. How excited were you for that? Well, you know, you, we have the USGA and uh, being an executive <laughs> committee member, you know, truly, I, I feel, and, I, and you know, I've got to stop saying this now that I'm moving into the president-elect role, but as the championship chair, I will tell you, I believe one of the special things, maybe the most special thing, uh, certainly one of the most unique things that the USGA does is conduct championships. Through our conducting of championships, we're hoping to inspire golfers at every level, you know, to play golf at the highest level. But we're also hoping to inspire the average everyday golfer by their ability to watch and witness and to attend these championships that they too might play better golf. And so for me, as one of those average players to stand on the first tee and announce or to sort of walk along with the groups and be a scorekeeper, I mean, this is pretty exciting. And then the excitement ratchets up another level when it's one of your kids. Right, right. Right? And so, man, Tyler Strafacci was a wonderful champion, and he certainly earned that 2020 U.S. Amateur title. But walking alongside Ollie, knowing 
all of the work that he puts in every day and yeah. seeing that work firsthand behind the scenes, uh, man, that was pretty special. And, uh, you know, all of our buddies back home in Dallas, all the text messages and all of the excitement because we had such a small U.S. amateur that year uh, was was so fun. And I will tell you, it's still a good experience, you know, uh, playing a leadership role in the game to attend the Masters and to watch these young kids that, you know, play in the Masters. Yeah. That was also very special to watch Ollie sort of play in the Masters. And uh, so, look, the game gives us so much. And this is why it's very easy to give back to the game. You were elected to the USGA Executive Committee back in 2018. And, you know, for most golf fans, you know, that watch the U.S. Open each and every year, you know, watching that U.S. Open might just be their only real true connection to the USGA. You know, they, they may be members of the USGA, but, you know, they get their hat in the mail. They, they're thanked for their patronage. But I'm not sure that most understand the workings behind the scenes, the people that work tirelessly to produce these championships. I thought it was, you know, great outgoing CEO. Mike Davis had a nice send off at Tory at the U S open last year. Uh, I believe he announced that. Yeah. He announced the final pairing on Sunday. I know he caddied for Jason Gore on Saturday. I know Jason Gore got a lot of praise for the setup of the course, but you know, Mike Davis, Jason Gore, John Bodenhammer, you know, I, I, I can't think of many other USGA officers, for lack of a better term, that, that get recognized by the casual golf fan. So what is the actual general purpose of the executive committee and and how that works with the, the professionals, so to speak, that, that run the championships at the USGA? Yeah. Well, first off, the USGA is a sort of um – not-for-profit uh, organization. And like most not-for-profits, we have a board uh, of directors, which is the executive committee, which is, which is all volunteers who provide oversight to the management team. And so, you know, we have a very functioning uh, and functional relationship in that, according to the bylaws, there are things that the USGA does that get, um, you know, sort of delegated uh, for sign-off by the executive committee. And so in that way, it, it is a really, you know, functional and um, healthy relationship between the management team, who are the professionals uh, that actually run the organization day-to-day. -day. And our new CEO, Mike Wan, uh, follows Mike Davis, who was my CEO when we joined. I mean, these are true professionals in the game. Um, and the executive committee works, uh, you know, hand in glove in terms of oversight. And there are specific things that the executive committee, do, uh, you know, are responsible for. You know, we sign off on where the championships are held. Uh, we sign off on major rules uh, changes. Uh, we provide, you know, that one step removed, uh, you know, vantage point to the management team. And the president of the USGA, really is the chairman of the executive committee. You know, I think what makes the USGA special for me, uh, we do two things um, and we have to do them very well. I mean, we do more than two things, but there are two things that we do that are very unique. One, we provide governance uh, in the game and try to keep the game healthy by setting the rules, uh, not only the rules on how you play, but the rules for equipment and the standards and the way by which you play. And that is important because as the game continues to evolve and the athletes continue to evolve, then we need to make sure that our rules are also evolving so that we keep this game healthy and strong. 
And then we conduct championships. Uh, we conduct our national championships across every level of golf, 14 every year. And those championships are intended to inspire golfers at every level to play golf at the highest level. And while the U.S. Open gets a lot of praise and the U.S. Women's Open, I hope you see all of the great energy under Mike Wan's leadership that we're, we're pushing into our women's game. Um, but it's truly the conducting of championships to inspire golf golfers that, you know, I've had the most interaction with as an executive committee member. And it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful to travel around the country to continue to build the relationships on behalf of the USGA with our host sites, uh, which really these host clubs are the ones that really allow us to do what we do and uh, to have, you know, these healthy and strategic partnerships. Um, it's just been, you know, you know, a point of great pleasure for me to get to know leaders around the country. And let me say, you know, John Bodenheimer and Mark Hill and, and uh, Jason Gore and Tommy and all of the folks that we work with uh, to conduct these championships. They're some of the greatest professionals in the game. They're also wonderful ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, you know, for me, it's been, you know, a treasure in my life to get to learn more from them and to work alongside with them. Any day hanging out with Jason Gore is a pretty good day, isn't it? Oh, man, that guy is just, he's just, <laughs> listen, he's the coolest guy. Uh, you know, not only is he a wonderful player, you know, he's a better human being. And you know, I, I love, you know, Jason and I are about, about the same age, um, but I, I just love that he's a trusted heir. Um, he's so fair and balanced. And, you know, he's, he's bringing a lot to the USGA because he's bringing the perspective of the elite player yeah. to the table. And so whether we're talking about equipment standards or, you know, how we set up golf courses or which sites we should, uh, you know, focus on, you know, Jason, you know, brings that player's perspective. And I, I think it's, it's so valuable for us and it is valid, you know, given the time of the game we find ourselves in. You're going to be president right around the time that he should be taking a leave of absence to get ready for the champions tour. I just thought of that. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, 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 I'm not making any announcements <laughs> on Jason's behalf, but I, I will say, guy can still play oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> uh, now i'm gonna see if i can put you in a little box you into a little bit of a of a tough uh, statement here you like you said you travel around to a lot of these uh championships i know you're getting ready to head down to the latin america amateur championship i've seen you at the u.s women's four ball walker cup usam i i know that it, they're kind of all your children so to speak but in your three years on the executive committee and you were chair of the uh, uh, competitions. Uh, let me see. Hold. It. You were chair of the championship committee. Um, which is there a championship that that stood out to you that not only you enjoyed tremendously, but you felt this is a championship that we need. I mean, people need to go to. Whether or not they go to a PGA Tour event every year, it's kind of their their routine in the summer. They need to they need to go to one of these championships. Is there one yeah. that stood out for you? Well, listen, it's hard to choose of one. It's, it's like asking me which one of my daughters do I like the most, right? Um, I love them all. And, and yet they're different. And I, how, how about we say that? Where they're, of course. None of them are better than the other. They're just really different. I, I, I wish that There's no golf, wrong answer. There's no wrong answer here. I wish that every golf fan gets, gets to go to a U.S. women's or U.S. Uh, amateur four ball. You know, uh, in 2021, going to the U.S. Women's uh, 
amateur four ball was just for me, it was so much fun. First, it's more of a bare bones championship. In other words, we don't have a huge USGA team there. So <clears throat> we're collaborating, collaborating a lot with the state and local, you know, regional uh, uh, folks to put on the championship. But secondly, to see these young ladies uh, uh, and these women, uh, you know, play golf at the highest level, but play four ball the way you and I might on a Saturday morning against two of our other body, right. buddies. And to watch them play, but compete, but also partner, um, you know, it's that camaraderie and that teammate that I, you know, I find so special. You know, being a being a teammate and and and, and playing, uh, you know, and representing your team. So I I hope everyone gets to go to a four ball. That's a wonderful championship, and it's it's a little different in that it's not an individual uh, event. And then you know, I have to tell you, you know, my first year as a member member of Seminole was also our Walker Cup year. And, you know, I hope everyone one day gets to attend a Curtis Cup or a Walker Cup. Yeah. You know, this year, the Curtis Cup will be at Marion, the Walker Cup at Seminole, these very intimate championships where you see the future stars in the game, uh, you know, play golf at the highest level, but not play for themselves, Ben. Yeah. They're playing for their country. And so whether it's the GB&I team or the USA team, of course, as a USGA um you know, executive committee member, I'm, I'm squarely rooting for our USGA US team, of course. but, uh, but it was so special to watch uh, these young men compete at Seminole where I get to play a lot and to see uh, the challenge of that course, you know, treat them the same way it treats us. Uh, I, yeah. you know, and, uh, and, you know, Jimmy Dunn and uh, Luis Fernandez and the whole team at Seminole, uh, John Martin, who, uh, these are greens committee. I mean, just did a fantastic job in presenting a wonderful uh, course for us. And then our team at the USGA um, did a wonderful job in presenting the championship. So I hope everyone gets to go to a Walker cup or a Curtis cup at some point in their, uh, you know, golf fandom. And trust me, you would not be disappointed to attend a U.S. amateur four ball or U.S. women's amateur four ball. Those are the championships that I love. Now, the U.S. Opens and the U.S. Women's Opens, they are what they are. Yeah, They're the course. best players in earth, on earth competing uh, probably in the most difficult championship on earth. So there's always a little bit of, you know, sort of tension and energy there that you love. Those are what they are. But, uh, but I would have to say Walker Cup, Curtis Cup, very special. Uh, I'm in complete agreement. I, I I was fortunate enough to be at Seminole for the Walker Cup, and I was uh, in my first one of my very first term experience or championship experiences was at the 2019 Walker Cup at Hoylake. And you're a hundred percent right when it comes to the four balls. They are, and I think what adds to those championships is that, like you said, it's a partnership. I see a lot of the individuals. You, you see that they are really zoned in on their own game and their own routine. But the partnerships just add a lot more camaraderie to it, and it just it just is a lot. It's a lot of fun. Now you mentioned Jimmy Dunn. You uh, you are you are not the first member of Seminole that has been a guest here at the back of the range. You know that Jimmy's been here, uh, Gene Elliott, and and uh, you know um, down down the line, there's been a lot of uh, Seminole members here uh, at the back of the range. But you mentioned Jimmy Dunn, and and you you said you're a member of Seminole, so I have to ask. What was your experience playing golf? What was your first experience playing golf with Jimmy Dunn like? 
Well, you know, listen, I don't want, I, I, I'm a very new member at Seminole, so I don't want to do anything to get myself in trouble with Jimmy, but let, let's, let's just say Jimmy is a true tre- treasure to the game. Yes. He's been a wonderful mentor and friend. The first uh, outing with Jimmy, um, you know, I think if I remember correctly, we had hit him and his partner down after two holes and uh jimmy was pretty pleasant on the third hole in fact um he mentioned to me that he had a friendship with sydney poite who also was a bahamian oh, and he was wow. very compl- complimentary of sir sydney and sort of reminded me of those attributes of bahamians that he loved uh-huh. and i reminisced about how there was some familiarity and he just heard so many good things so he was so pleasant through the first three holes and when we got to hole four and he realized that they were down two, there was a different Jimmy. <laughs> and uh, and let's just say we had a nine-hole match because we were playing an event that was nine holes. And let's sure. just say Jimmy, the other side of Jimmy came out, the one that is truly a competitor. Uh-huh. And uh, we, we, we were not successful that day against his uh, he and his partner in a four-ball. But, but let me just say, and, and in all seriousness, um, that man is a true... Uh, you know, treasure for the game. He, you know, you think that you are a special friend of Jimmy and you are. Yes. And then you don't realize how many special friends Jimmy really does have. And, uh, and and so for me, I always feel like, uh, man, when I get to spend an evening um, and to hear the stories and really to listen and to learn, you know, these are the, these are the kind of things, Ben, that golf gives you that you could never buy. You can only earn. And uh, when you start where I started in life and I, you know, sometimes get emotional about the sacrifices my parents made for me to have a life like this, the deep gratitude to them, you know, it's just, it's just really special when I think about, you know, being in proximity with these great leaders and, uh, you know, just really having this kind of life arc. It's one that, it's one that, you know, I could have never imagined for myself. And so Jimmy and many other friends in golf, you know, have been very special to me. And, you know, I, I, I do not take for granted the, the, the texts that you might get from Jimmy every now and again, when something special has happened, uh, the fact that he is uh, so attentive, uh, you know, to the people that he cares about. And, uh, and you know, it shows at Seminole, which is a you know, great club for camaraderie. And as you know, the culture of a club often reflects the culture of the leader. And uh, so you play fast. <laughs> you have to be a good, good guy or gal. Uh, and you have to love golf. Yeah. And uh, and uh, I think those are wonderful attributes of Seminole, but those are really attributes of Jimmy as well. Yeah, I've been fortunate to spend some time with him. And for people that have not gone back, I mean, please go back and listen to episode 123. Jimmy was, was incredible. His story is incredible. But, yeah, seeing him at the Walker Cup, boy, and the pride he had in that week. Oh, my gosh, he was just so – and, and rightfully so, but he was just so proud of the club, so proud of the game that they were able to have the Walker Cup at Seminole. Um, it was fun to see him in that role of just, you know, he was kind of the mayor for those few days. You could just see he was just so, so proud of, of, of not just obviously, you know, the, the entire team, the entire uh, organism that came together to make that happen is so great. Um, you mentioned, we've mentioned this numerous times, you're going to be the the, the president uh you know president-elect right now of of the usga i thought we had a great 
nickname for you, Fred. I thought, you know, the 007 of the USGA, because when I've seen you, got the aviator shades on and the USGA issued cigar walking around and, and just, <laughs> I thought, I thought we had the nickname, but that's, that's quickly going away because now it's president elect and it has a parallel to when you were named CEO at the Beck group because uh, Peter Beck continues to be an executive chairman uh, at, at the organization. And it, it's similar to this one year where you have, you know, Stu Francis still as president where uh, you're kind of waiting in the wings. What, what excites you about this year? I know you have the presidency and the, the three-year term in, in the future, but what excites you the most about this, about 2022? Yeah, Ben, that's a great question. You know, I think, you know, one of the things for me through my experience, you know, leadership is really not an individual event. It really is a team sport. And particularly when you're having to lead a company, uh, you know, our company is 110 years old, the Beck Group. And, uh, you know, we've had five CEOs in that 110 years. And so I always think that I have the baton for this, you know, uh, leg of the relay, but uh, I want to make sure that I advance the baton in a way that is reflective of the values and the culture. And then, then when I hand it off, you know, the team is in a slightly better shape. Uh, and uh, certainly think about that a lot uh, in my role at Beck uh, as a CEO, you know, to be a steward of all that is good about the company and to hopefully make it a little better as we go. And I hope that is also true uh, of the experience, um, you know, as president elect, look, Stu Francis flat out has been an amazing friend and a wonderful mentor. And truly, I believe, you know, the credit that he deserves having led through COVID and all of the threats around canceling championships, losing revenue, keeping people safe, conducting championships, modernizing the rules. You know, Stu has absolutely, you know, given so much uh, during his service. You know, for me, this year, kind of uh, as president-elect, I want to spend as much time um, learning from Stu and, and, and formalizing some of that learning and eventually preparing for a handoff. You know, it's my goal to also recognize that the story of the USGA, you know, is a story that's been painted over 130 years, you know. And, um, you know, we have fortunately still many presidents alive and well and still leading uh, in the game. And so the ability to spend time with, uh, you know, former presidents like Mark Newell, who I spoke with last week and, um, you know, Diana Murphy and Tom O'Toole and Walter Driver. And there's just, you know, so many former presidents that, you know, for me this year, I can spend time with and learn and share and get perspective. Um, that's going to be really important for me across this year. You know, I love what Mike Davis did during his tenure as CEO Mike was a credit to the USGA and still is a credit to the overall game. I, I'm fortunate to call him a friend. But to, to just get the history and the context um, is really important because there's no question we're coming into a time of change. And, and with all you know, creativity and innovation, it is just as important to know what you will not change as what needs to be changed. And that tension and that balance is something that, you know, I think we all will have a responsibility in. 
And then finally, the USGA does not lead the game of golf by itself. You know, we operate in an ecosystem uh, and that ecosystem is shared. You know, we govern the game along with the RNA. We conduct major championships along with the RNA and Augusta National and the PGA of America. And these are wonderful leadership organizations as well. And so having the opportunity to build deeper relationships, to keep um, open uh, you know, communication to understand what's important to everyone, not just what's important to us, I think is going to be, uh, you know, a lot of fun. And then we've got this soup. What I, I like to, to say, we've got a leader and we've got a leader's leader in Mike Wan, yeah. who is our brand new CEO. And I, I, I hope you will get Mike on your podcast at some point, but Love Mike you. is a, you know, sort of refreshing, uh, point of view, a bundle of energy, and just a clear-eyed leader. And as you know, the quality of your outcomes are often just reflecting the quality of your team. And I think in Mike, we have you know one of the great leaders in the game, one of the great leaders uh, you know operating in our country right now. We've, we're getting him at the peak, uh, you know, of his career. And so, spending time to get to know Mike a little better, so that we are you know a, a, a team that's joined at the hip. And then finally, I want to say, you know, I still enjoy being the championship chair, and I get one more year uh, <laughs> to do that along with John Bodenheimer. John has become you know, just for me, an awesome friend, uh, a resource, you know, we learn and share together. I certainly bring some experiences in terms of other boards and businesses, uh, but John brings a ton of experience in the game of golf itself and, and uh, having a functional relationship with John and with Mark and the ability to travel along with them and continue to do the people's work. That's, that's a, a lot of fun. And then I will say, you know, oftentimes one thing you haven't asked me, people say, well, how can you run a company and serve on the USGA board? How can you do both of those? And, you know, this integration of life is, is for me, a very important factor that we all have our faith, our family, uh, our business, and we have our passions and, we should not think of these things as separate things. We should think of them as all integrated, all as one thing. And, you know, the work that I do building buildings and designing buildings is not in conflict with the people I enjoy. Uh, in fact, because of the passion in the game, the work that I do gets better. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, for me, this is going to be a fun year, you know, keeping all of these, uh, points balanced um and man what a gift what a gift uh, to be able to be in proximity uh in the way that we are now you and and that and a lot of things you hit on right there but definitely mike Wan really excited to see the future and what what he does and, and already i mean look ProMedica becomes a presenting sponsor of the u.s women's open boosting the purse and the and the exposure of that event the u.s adaptive open championship has just recently been announced um, you know, which is a new national championship that's going to be Pinehurst showcasing the world's best golfers with disabilities. And a great time for me to mention to listeners, if you want to learn more about these announcements from the USGA, you know, I get press releases, but go to Twitter and follow USGA underscore PR. That's where the USGA makes all these incredible announcements. So people listening, hop on Twitter. There's still there's still some good things on Twitter. So, you know, just hop in there and follow that. Now, 
you and I spoke previously before this episode um, about a topic that I know we wanted you wanted to talk a little bit about. Now, as of yet, the PGA Tour, the RNA, the PGA of America have never had a black president, and you are going to be the first black president of the USGA. And I know it's something that uh, immense pride, but also not you don't want that to be the very first tagline of the bio when you're introduced or when someone's reading an article, obviously with the announcement, that's, that may be the narrative now, but you don't necessarily want that to be the first line of the bio. Am I correct there? Yeah. I mean, look, race is always present we are American and race is always going to be a part of our American story, but we also are a country that's headed in a direction that I believe generally is, is, Great. Our future, you know, is so much, you know, it's so bright. And and yet the ability to stand in this role and without saying anything to indicate that there is room in this game for everyone, irrespective of where you come from, what you believe, um, and what you look like. I mean, I think that's an important thing, but that's not the only thing. And so what I try to focus on, you know, for me is, yes, I am the first black president of the USGA. I hope I'm not the last, but I also want folks to know, like, it's the relationships and the service and the love and the passion for the game that allows me to play this role, not the color of my skin. And so on the one hand, I'm very excited uh, that we no longer have to answer questions about race and having you know, sort of a leader in the game, uh, be an African-American. On the other hand, I think the story of how you lean into this game is such a, you know, more critical part of the story. And so for me, golf has been great. It's given me the proximity um, to learn from other leaders. It's given me, you know, the relationships and the opportunity to contribute not only to the game of golf, but to my community and to the lives of other, it's given me deep friendships. Those all come from a shared experience, uh, which ultimately as Americans, we have so much more that we believe in common than separates us. And so for me, it's always difficult uh, to be labeled as, as, you know, by your race. Right. Uh, but I hope folks will, will know that, yes, it is historical, and I'm very proud of that, proud of what it means for African-American golfers, proud of what it means for the potential of African-Americans and all minorities within the leadership roles in golf. But I hope that we don't stop there. Right. I hope that we keep the conversation going about the experiences and the openness in organizations like the USGA and the ability for one to lean in, to jump in and to serve. And when we live life that way, not only will the game of golf continue to improve, when we attract more people to this game, not only will we find that our clubs and our friendships improve, but we also will find that our life continues to improve. And so I'm very proud of uh, the distinction but I hope we just don't stop there. And I hope we, we continue to move in a way that this doesn't become something that, you know, sort of allows us to pit ourselves against each other, but that we just imagine 
you know, life the way we all should live life, which is a felt life that we all live together. And that's what I'm proud, you know, symbolically about what this, um, you know, opportunity says. Um, it's really the opportunity to live life with the people you admire and the people that, you know, that you learn from. And in uh, that way, all of us can serve. Yeah, and it's a great, very well said. It's a great lesson also just for people listening to the podcast because a lot of people listening are either parents of juniors, junior players themselves, amateurs. They're listening to people that have accomplished great things in the game. And a lot of the kids that I'm around at collegiate events, amateur events, they think that their only progression in the game is to turn pro is I need to make money on the golf course. That's how I'm going to be a success in life. And we're listening to someone right now that just picked up the game 10 years ago, and look what golf has has given you and what doors golf has opened up for you. So it just shows that there are so many different paths. Maybe not everyone leads to the USGA Executive Committee, but there are so many ways you can get involved with your local club, local state golf association, first tee pro. There's so many ways to have doors open for you and for you to give back to the game. And who knows where it's going to take you. Yeah. You know, and Ben, it's one of the things I love about, you know, sort of, we spend a lot of time working and thinking about how we make this game more accessible Yeah, because it's one thing to talk about inclusion. And I find that, many places in the game are open, but are they really accessible? And we have real barriers for entry. Look, I was playing with a young man, Reese, um, who was uh, my caddy and he, Reese is African-American. And we talked about his experience in the game. Reese is a very good player. He loves to play. And we literally talked about the barriers in moving forward and deeper into the game. And cost is one of those barriers. Yeah. And to the extent that African-Americans uh, and African-American households have not achieved the same kind of uh, financial you know, progress, uh, although more and more we see an upward trajectory there, we know that if we want the game to be more diverse, we have to make it more accessible. And cost is a factor. So finding ways to develop first T programs, to invest in youth on course, to break down those financial barriers so that kids of color and kids of lower means who are, who might be white kids from, you know, sort of the middle of our cities, middle of our country, but to find ways to make the game more accessible and less costly so that kids who love the game continue to play and that kids who may not know about the game have the opportunity to learn about the game. These are the practical steps we need to take. And, you know, for me, coming from a family not of means, it would have been impossible as a 14-year-old to afford to play golf, just given the equipment costs, the cost to be on courses, the cost of instruction, and so on and so forth. Um, track and field is not an expensive sport. Golf is. Right. But organizations like the USGA, we have a responsibility to continue to interrogate how we reduce the cost and therefore increase the access. And it is a point that I know Mike Wan shares it's a point that every leader at the USGA executive committee we speak about. And I think you will find us continue to invest deeply in this accessibility because we have to move beyond the discussion of inclusion. No one today, I think, wants to be exclusive. Everyone wants to be inclusive. Right. But 
access is where we will focus. And so you will continue to see us direct our resources to those programs uh, and to those initiatives that reduce the cost barrier and increase access. That's how we will make this game uh, more inclusive and therefore uh, more expansive and better for all of us. I was going to ask you the most, uh, you know, I was going to ask you, what do you think the most important issue in golf is that needs more attention and discussion? I think you just answered that question without without being prompted. I mean, you're 100% right. I think at least, correct me if I'm wrong, but this seems to be really, I don't know if you want to call it your, your agenda as a president or something that you really want to focus on, but this has to be at the top of the list. Look, when you see us, um, you know, make changes like, adding a presenting sponsor to a national championship yeah. was not something we took lightly. Of course. But the commitment of ProMedica and the additional resources will not only allow us to increase the quality of the U.S. Women's Open by putting them on more attractive and uh, continue to invest in the cathedrals of the game and allowing the women to play there, but you will also see the additional resources invested deeply into the women's game so that we encourage and provide the resources for more young women to continue to lean in and to play golf at the highest level. Like these are the things, the practical steps we need to be taking to ensure that we are one raising the resources and then two directing those resources so that we create a better uh, and more accessible game uh, for more people. Look, when our young women are playing, when more of our kids of color are playing, when we have the opportunity to retain young people of every background that love the game and we reduce the barriers that drive them away, we will find that our game not only grows, but it thrives. And that's a big, you know, sort of focus, I think, you know, for me personally, but it's easy to have that personal focus because it totally is what we are focused on at the USGA. It's one of, you know, our main tenors. So um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And look, to the extent that having a, a, a black uh, president, you know, indicates to kids of color that there's room in this game, that's good. But really moving beyond that, it's the relationship and the connection. This notion that when a Stu Francis and a Fred Paul walk in and we not only work together, we not only admire each other, but we, we, we love each other and, and we enjoy being with each other. And we send a strong signal like to all Americans, like this is what a great life looks like yeah. when you lean into people. And golf is so powerful because it provides us this common mechanism where we enjoy something together and we have the opportunity for intimacy, which builds trust. And breaks down barriers. And this is why I love the game of golf. I love playing. But boy, I love the results of playing. Uh, which turns out not to be a better golf game, but a better life. Your energy is, is infectious and just the passion that you have for the organization as a whole and not just what it's done for you but what you're you see I think you're seeing down the road what you're what you're going to be able to accomplish in the next several years and the, and the change and the promotion of, of this great game. I, I, it sounds like it's going to be a fantastic run for you. Well, uh, 
Fran, I know it's it's a gosh, every week's got to be busy for you. So I'm going to let you go, but I I wanted to close out by asking you now, this is a serious one, okay? You're going to you're the president elect and you're going to be the president of the USGA. You're the top guy at the at, you're the top guy. Does this mean that you can guarantee yourself the starter role at any USGA championship that you choose? I mean, I mean, of all the things to wield your power, you you can give yourself unlimited mulligans. Every three footers a gimme. I don't think you're going to do that. But please tell me, you are still going to be a starter at some of these USGA championships. Well, let me just tell you, I've gotten to do a lot of cool things as a USGA executive committee member. I, I I have to say and give a shout out to all of the men and women serving on the USGA executive committee with me. Some of the most committed professionals, you know, I think about, I, I don't want to start calling names because I invariably will leave one out, but I, I've just had the pleasure of serving alongside these men and women. Um, I also have to give in closing just a you know, deep amount of credit to all of the management team at the USGA. I mean, I, I certainly enjoy, you know, I've mentioned Tom, um, uh, Mark uh, and John and Mike Wan and Mike Davis, but Thomas Pagel and, you know, uh, we just got such a talented group of folks, uh, Emily and the whole team. I mean, that I get to work around. So, you know, I think you will probably still see me every yes. now and again, spot beauty as a starter. But certainly moving uh, these roles around to others uh, on the executive committee and also in our state you know, golf associations, it's important that we you know, sort of share these roles because the more roles our executive committee members play at our championships, the better they learn the championship and you know the more empathetic and therefore the better decision-making uh, they can help us with. And so... I think it's pretty safe to say uh, you will see me as a starter down the line. I enjoy doing it. Uh, it is a ton of fun, and uh, certainly it's a wonderful way to contribute to the championship itself. It sounds to me that I have a three- to four-year window for me to get my game back together and try and qualify for another U.S. Mid-Am. If I get into a U.S. Mid-Am, you need to be a starter, please. Can we, can we, make, can we make that deal done? Can we get that? Well, done? you know, you know, you know, you're, you're getting me to think that the next championship chair uh, that that uh, follows me, I may need to have some sort of a understanding. Put, put, put a clause. Relative to, <laughs> put a clause in some there. Some clause <laughs> relative <laughs> to starting. But no, truly, it's it's fun. And you mentioned Bob Ford earlier. What a gentleman and. Oh. Uh, yeah, I love standing at the first tee with him at the U.S. Open to watch, uh, you know, not only how he starts, but uh, just the regard that the players have for uh, Mr. Ford. And it, uh, it's just been it's just been great. That's one of the you know very fun roles in uh, in golf. I'm just glad the USGA is keeping you busy because with your voice, if you got into podcasting, my career's over. I'm just glad no, that you have no. something going on because <laughs> I don't need any more competition. Um well, hey Ben. Yes, sir. Ben, I want to I want to close with a special thank you for you. You know, the amateur game truly uh, is, I believe, the special part of golf. Um, we all are amateurs. We play for the passion and the love of the game, which is truly the definition of amateur. And I want to thank you for your passion for the amateur game and all that you do to invest and to you know sort of elevate the game. 
Um, in that way, you are serving not only um, you know back of the range and its viewers, but you're serving the entire game. So on behalf of myself, the team of the USGA, thank you for all that you continue to do to keep our amateur game you know fresh alive and strong well it's it's my pleasure and it is my passion i don't think i can end the episode any better so uh thank you for for being here at the back of the range and um i will see you out there at some point in 2022 and uh look forward to walking the course with you and again fred appreciate it thanks for stopping by the back of the range thank you talk soon and there you have it thank you so much to fred per paul for joining me on this episode here at the back of the range Special thanks to the USGA for helping to make this episode happen. Every episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. And don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We will see you next time here at the Back of the Range.